The opposite of fear is bravery. Hmm. Nope. The opposite of fear is curiosity. Is the glass half empty? Is it half full? That misses the point. Elevating curiosity will help you see and understand what's in the glass. This is Applied Curiosity Lab Radio, the podcast of curiosity. In each episode, Becky Saltzman interviews unconventional thinkers and doers in her unconventional way to dissect and uncover what you can use to see things others miss, make better decisions, and apply your talents in new and profound ways. Elevate curiosity, escape the boundaries of ordinary. What worries me is the possibility that members of our government, or perhaps the entire government, is working in conjunction with one or more species of alien creatures. That's my greatest fear. In fact, that frightens me more than the aliens themselves. Hello here, curiosity seekers and adventurous thinkers. Welcome to Applied Curiosity Lab Radio, episode number... 15. I am your host, Becky Saltzman, and today we're going to take a curious peek into the world of UFOs and ETs. Fermi's paradox is essentially this paradox that describes the high statistical probability for the existence of extraterrestrial civilizations and the lack of evidence or the claimed lack of evidence of ETs. Given the size and age of the universe, we're inclined to believe that Many technologically advanced civilizations must exist, except for this belief seems logically inconsistent with what some people claim or what skeptics claim, or depending on the surveys, what most Americans claim. There's surveys that suggest that half of the Americans, roughly half or roughly more than half or a little bit less than half, believe in the existence of UFOs as evidence of extraterrestrial life. But for those who don't believe that, they find that there is a significant lack of scientific evidence given the probability of likelihood of ETs, someone else out there, somewhere, in the galaxies, far, far away. So they say that Either the initial assumption of the existence of these ETs is incorrect and technologically advanced intelligent life is much rarer than we believe, or our current observations are incomplete and we simply have not detected them yet, or our search methodologies are flawed and maybe we're not searching for the correct indicators or the right stuff. Of course, not all unidentified flying objects are extraterrestrial spacecraft. Each case each reporting must be judged on its own merits. And today I chat with UFO expert Peter Davenport, who does just that, judge these reportings and log these reportings for the as the director of the National UFO Reporting Center, a position he's held since 1994. The center is an independently operated 24-hour hotline for UFO sightings, and we will throw the hotline number and all of the relevant links in the show notes at Applied Curiosity Lab slash blog, where you can find all the episode show notes. Peter was born in St. Louis. He lived there till he was 14. 
He received his undergraduate degrees at Stanford in both Russian and biology, and his graduate degrees were earned at the University of Washington in Seattle, where he earned a master's in genetics and biochemistry of fish from the College of Fisheries and an MBA in finance and international business from the Graduate School of Business. He also earned a translator's certificate in Russian from the Monterey Language Institute. Peters worked as a college instructor, a commercial fisherman, a Russian translator in the Soviet Union, a fisheries observer aboard Soviet fishing vessels, a flight instructor, and a businessman. He was the founding president of the Seattle-based biotech company Biosyn. And she'll hear he also has a deep interest in science and an uncanny, unbelievably encyclopedic memory in recounting dates and times and locations and even some of the most arcane-seeming details of a sighting. And I love it because you can just get an idea of the massive amounts of reports that he has received and how some of these have just really stood out in his mind as just the most fascinating and spine-tingling, and he can recall those, and I enjoy hearing his stories, and his recall is amazing. Peter's also had an active interest in UFO phenomenon since his early boyhood. He experienced his first UFO sighting over the St. Louis Municipal Airport in the summer of 1954, and he's investigated his, and he then investigated his first UFO case during the summer of 1965 in Exeter, New Hampshire. In addition, Peter has been witness to several anomalous events, possibly UFO-related, including a dramatic sighting over Baja, California in 1990, and several nighttime sightings over Washington State in 1992, and his most recent sighting occurred over eastern Washington in October of 2011. In addition to being the director of the National UFO Reporting Center, Peter has served as the director of investigations for the Washington chapter of the Mutual UFO Network, or MUFON, and he's currently a MUFON member. He's a frequent lecturer and a nationally recognized ufologist. So I brought curiosity to this topic, given the fact that Various reports indicate that somewhere slightly less than, and in some reports slightly more than, half of Americans believe that UFOs are evidence of extraterrestrial intelligent life, and the other half, or less than half, or more than half, don't believe in UFOs at all. So we bring our lens of curiosity to this topic in order to extract insights and wisdom and some actionable bits in case you see something that is an unidentified flying object, meaning something that flies, something that is unidentifiable, at least to you, you will have the tools and tricks to know whether, hey, maybe that's a UFO as evidence of an intelligent ET, or maybe it's just evidence of your lack of understanding of the night sky, or maybe it's something that is unidentified, but not evidence of anything extraterrestrial. Whether you believe in UFOs now or will believe in UFOs after this episode or your mind is not changed at all, I do believe you will enjoy this episode with Peter Davenport. Hey, Peter, welcome to the show. I'm so excited to have you here. Thank you, Becky. It's delightful to be here, and I'm looking forward to talking about my favorite subject, the UFO phenomenon. I am delighted and flattered by your invitation to appear. Well, thank you. We wanted to have a discussion earlier, but something last night happened. Yeah, it was a dramatic night. The night of Saturday, the 9th of December, 2017, 
was a very busy night in a in an encapsulated form. It looks like a cluster of up to a hundred red glowing objects migrated or traveled from the east coast to the west coast, starting in Florida, appearing in South Carolina. They were reported from Illinois, Missouri, and Kansas in rapid sequence, Colorado, Wyoming, Montana, Idaho, Washington, and California. We don't have any idea yet what these objects were, but the calls and the reports are still flooding in here. And we just updated our website, so the report should be there as I speak, I hope. Wow, interesting. So that's what took up most of your day today, I assume. It took the whole day. (laughs) Handling reports, proofreading them, editing them, getting them ready for posting to our website is a very laborious and time-consuming process, but we got it done today and we should have all those reports posted as I speak. We have no idea what it was, but the interesting thing is that a news station in Denver, television news station, posted some video last night of the cluster of red lights as they appeared over the general Denver area. And by this morning, the Air Force had tried to convince the television station, the news station, that all those objects were were red lights on the wingtips of 100 C-17 military cargo planes flying in tight formation. So apparently that suggests to me that the event that occurred last night, Saturday night, was very unusual and it caused the military and the U.S. government generally to try to quash any interest in it. Okay, interesting. I'm going to get to the whole government role and government squashing of potential UFO as extraterrestrial phenomenon in a minute because I think that's an important part of the conversation. I'm curious, just to start with a little bit of your background, do you think that there's some kind of upbringing or early exposure that makes one more open to the understanding or willingness to investigate UFOs as extraterrestrial phenomenon? And what started your interest in UFOs personally? Two good questions. Well, you're correct. I talked to a lot of people in the course of a year who... Uh, report to me that they had very early sightings in their lives, and that sort of sparked an interest in the field of ufology. It certainly did in me. People can read my first report posted to our website, ufocenter.com. I think it was either July or August of 1954, I saw a very dramatic sighting or had a very dramatic sighting of a UFO over the St. Louis airport. The interesting thing is that hundreds, possibly thousands of people saw the same thing. They were getting out of their cars and ignoring the movie. The sighting was so dramatic. And interestingly, my father at the time was on the other side of the airport in the control tower looking at the object with binoculars. So I believe it is correct to say that I have been entranced by the UFO phenomenon ever since that sighting. Why was your father in the control tower? Well, he worked for a major American airline for over four decades, and he had to work one evening in his office at the airline terminal, and 
He had good friends who worked in control towers, so he was up there visiting them when they saw this object on the other side of the airport. They had no idea what it was, and whenever my family got together, my parents, my brother, and I got together, we would talk about that incident. My mother found it to be a rather strange incident. She, I think to a degree, enjoyed talking about it. My father never did like to talk about it. He would change the subject, it always seemed to me, or try to get away from it as quickly as possible. I don't know why. No clue as to why? Not a clue at all, although he was uh, trained in science. He was trained in physics before he started working for the airlines. I think it's correct to label him a scientist. So he needed documentation. He needed proof to believe in something. Despite that very dramatic sighting, he, with very good binoculars, for some reason he didn't like to talk about it. So... I don't know. I'm just conjecturing here. Well, speaking of science, I think a lot about Fermi's paradox, which essentially the paradox that describes the high statistical probability for the existence of extraterrestrial civilizations and the seemingly lack or claimed lack of evidence of ETs. And given the size and age of the universe, we're inclined to believe that many technologically advanced civilizations must exist. And then some believe that it's logically inconsistent with what people claim or what skeptics claim is our lack of observational evidence. So they say that either one, the initial assumption is incorrect and technologically advanced intelligent life is much rarer than we believe, or two, our current observations are incomplete and we simply have not detected them yet, or three, our search methodologies are flawed and we're not searching for the correct indicators. In your view, what's the single most compelling argument for debunking the paradox and for the existence no. of extraterrestrials? Well, there are a couple things I would cite. I know you asked for one, but I think there are a couple that I'd like to discuss. Sure. Uh, one is the, the sheer volume of reports, not all of which are from competent experienced observers, but many of them are. And I defy a person to read the data on our website, ufocenter.com. I have about 113,000 reports posted there and be able to assert that all of them are cases of mistaken identity or hoaxes that clearly cannot be the case. The other thing that I would cite is the detection of these objects using radar. Clearly, the U.S. government, when they are able to detect an astronaut's glove or a tool dropped in space that passes over the United States, if they can detect that with the radar systems they're using, are we to believe that they are not able to detect a disk that might be 30 or 60 or 120 feet in diameter or larger still? as in the case of the Phoenix Lights. You've probably heard of the Phoenix Lights, the objects that went over Phoenix on the uh, 13th of March, 1997, were up to eight miles in width from wingtip to wingtip. So, And those were were observed by people's eyes or other... Eyes and camera, and I suspect radar, but the government usually controls all the radar for commercial aviation and certainly for military aviation. So even if they had detected them, 
they're not going to share that information with the American public. The government's position is UFOs don't exist. People like me are crazy. We don't know what we're talking about. And I don't believe that's the case. I think we know what we're talking about extremely well. We have a good command of our data. Most serious-minded ufologists I'm talking about now. And Why does the government... I wonder if this is unique to the U.S. government, but why? what would be the incentive for the U.S. government to cover up the existence of UFOs as extraterrestrials? And let me get clarification. When you're talking about UFOs, are we talking about UFOs as evidence of extraterrestrial existence or just the fact that there are unidentified flying objects? Well, when I use the term, I have in mind a very sophisticated extraterrestrial craft that was not constructed on the planet Earth, and it is being piloted either directly or indirectly by presumed alien creatures, very technologically skilled alien creatures. That's how I use the term. Okay. So when we're talking about UFOs, that's what we're talking about. Why would the government, I guess specifically the U.S. government, and then also either in conjunction with or, or similarly to other governments, cover up the existence of yeah. potential or potential existence of UFOs? Yeah. I don't speak on behalf of the government. In a sense, they are my adversary. And this set of sightings last night on the 9th of December is a classic example this morning, the Air Force was trying to convince news personnel that what everybody had reported and videotaped was nothing more than a bunch of military aircraft in a tight formation. It's utterly absurd. They must be desperate to keep this issue hidden from the American public. But I don't speak on behalf of that government, and I would like to know the answer to the very reasonable question that you pose what worries me is the possibility that members of our government, or perhaps the entire government, is working in conjunction with one or more species of alien creatures. That's my greatest fear. In fact, that frightens me more than the aliens themselves and what they might, what their arrival on our planet might do to our society and its stability. Why is that frightening? For all intents and purposes, if it were not for an organization like the National UFO Reporting Center or the Mutual UFO Network, there are many others, of course, across the nation, bringing this information about the possible or the quite likely visitation of our planet by alien creatures, the American people would be totally defenseless in the face of any kind of assault or aggression from these things that the American people and populations of other countries as well would not be prepared for in the least. So it worries me that things might be taking place in our government that the American people are not aware of and uh, are not concerned about. Perhaps in a totalitarian regime like the old Soviet Union or Nazi Germany, it's okay for the people to remain in the dark. But in our society, we expect that every citizen is capable of casting an intelligent ballot at the polls. That's how our government works. And if they can't do that, if they don't have the information that allows them to cast that intelligent ballot, then we're in a very, very serious 
and risky situation in my estimation. How does that jibe with considering aliens and the reporting of other countries? Is there a theory that ufologists universally hold about why other countries, governments would be incented to keep this information from their populations? Well, the population of UFO investigators is quite varied and variegated. I doubt that there's a single thought that all UFO investigators could agree on. Hmm. The one thing I would cite is there are governments that are much more open about the UFO phenomenon than the U.S. government is. I would cite Chile, which a number of years ago appointed a a panel of civilians and UFO experts to counsel the government on what it should do with regard to the UFO phenomenon. I would also cite Belgium, case in point, after uh, some very dramatic sightings over Belgium in 1989, I believe it was, they have kept two F-16 military fighter aircraft on hot pads ready to go and ready to photograph these objects, they were triangular or wedge-shaped objects, if they ever come back. The British government seems to be becoming more compliant or more willing to release data back in May of 2008. May 14, 2008, I believe was the date. The UK English government reported that whereas they did not believe in UFOs and whereas They had not collected a single scrap of data about UFOs, and whereas they'd never investigated a UFO sighting, they were nevertheless going to be releasing approximately 4,000 UFO case files every six months or so, I believe the, the term was. So that's a lot of UFO case files to be releasing by a government that allegedly had never expressed even the slightest interest in UFOs. So we know these governments are lying to us. And part of my job, I feel, in fact, perhaps even a very important part of my job, is keeping the government's feet to the fire and keeping them as honest as somebody in my position can possibly do on the subject of UFOs. Since 2008, have any of the things that the UK has disclosed or shared been enlightening? And don't some of these other countries also have radar? I don't know. Are they using, I guess they would be passive radar techniques. And why would, why would the countries who are not so careful about denying the existence of UFOs not share their information? Well, they do. And uh, oftentimes, but most countries are not developed enough militarily or technologically to be detecting these objects on a reliable and routine basis. The U.S. government, on the other hand, has been very active in the space race or space industry, let's call it, and it has caused them to build, as you correctly uh, imply, build passive radar systems. Maybe we can talk about that later in the program to detect these objects. And my strong suspicion is the U.S. government has been detecting many UFOs, let's call them anomalous targets, for the last 50 or 60 years 
since we've been in space and since they've tracked every item that orbits the planet above a certain size. So most countries do not have that kind of technological capability and haven't been tracking space debris the way the U.S. government has. I see. Has there been anything juicy in the U.K.'s report since 2008 or not really? I'm not a specialist in that field. You should probably interview Nick Pope or some of the U.K. investigators. I don't have direct access to the raw files. It would be very interesting to go through them and see what they have collected over the years and decades, going back to the 40s and 50s. What qualifies someone as a ufologist? I would say the most important aspect of a UFO investigator or ufologist is just common sense. Common sense, the ability to communicate an understanding of some of the principles that apply in ufology, principles of optics, principles of weather, principles of astronomy, having a sort of a general grasp of all those subjects is very important to be able to sift through data very quickly and reliably to weed out cases of simply misidentified terrestrial objects, celestial bodies, stars and planets, and so on. Most of all, and it goes back to a question you posed earlier, how does a person get started in this? What events happen in your life? Most of all is an abiding interest in the subject. And I find that not too difficult in my case, because clearly, if there are UFOs or aliens in our galaxy, in our solar system, that is the greatest scientific question that has ever been posed to mankind. If the answer is yes, and the government is not sharing that information with us, there are two issues that make it important. One, the existence of aliens, other life forms, intelligent life forms, technologically skilled life forms, and the other is a government that is lying to the American people and lying big time, and they've been doing it probably since the 1940s or even before, so 70 years at least. Hmm. Do you find, I should say, people who are ufologists or scientists looking into the existence of UFOs, is there anything where people are less religious or more religious? Is there any corollary that, that you find interesting with regard to religion or other belief systems or lack of? Well, it would be very difficult for me to answer that question. Again, I'm a scientist. I embrace the scientific method. That's the only way to know anything for sure. I really have not studied the question that you pose. It's a very good one, and we need people to do that, to go out and poll individuals who have a belief in ufology or believe that UFOs are real and ask what their religious views are and how those two issues may have interacted. But that takes time. Being an investigator requires great patience, a great deal of time, and a great deal of other resources to be able to do it right. And I don't think anybody's done that yet. How do you distinguish between people who actually see UFOs and those who are delusional or brainwashed or misrepresenting or even pranking? What's your process, yeah. for, what's your process for rooting out hoaxes? Just listen to the person. You can tell a great deal about a person just from how he speaks, how he sounds, how he uses words, and so on. 
And for example, I've been for the last three or three months or so, I've been plagued by a lot of uh, prank calls posed placed to the hotline by young American kids from the age of five to maybe 18 or 20. And it's really not difficult at all to determine relatively quickly whether this is a serious call or whether it's a prank call. And there, you're right, there are a lot of delusional people, a lot of people with schizophrenia. I presume I'm not qualified to diagnose it, but that would be my guess. You come up with a few questions over time from from a lot of work in the field that are very useful. The first question is, would the person like to submit a written report? If they don't want to submit a written report, they almost certainly are not serious in their call. Oh, interesting. Uh, if you ask them whether they have photos, if if they've been seeing UFOs allegedly for 20 years, but they just haven't thought to capture a photograph of one of these aliens, then you're probably dealing with a prankster or somebody who is, as you imply, mentally deranged. So there are a lot of things you can do that filter through the incoming reports pretty quickly. So you only take written reports. You wouldn't take one over the phone and put it on your site. No, usually not. It's a test. It's a shibboleth to see whether the person is serious. If they want, if they call and they want me to write their report, they're being a little illogical because I didn't see what they saw. They're the witness. They're the only one who can write that report. But if they want me to listen to them and write their report for them, it tells me that they're really not serious. After all, if a person sees a UFO or an alien, sincerely sees an alien or UFO, a genuine alien or UFO, they are shocked to the roots of their souls in most occasions. And they have an abiding desire to record the information and get it to an organization like ours so we can share it with the public. So that's one test you can use. That's the value of asking if they would like to submit a written report. If the answer is no, I move on fairly quickly. Are there different types of crafts that get reported, and has it changed over time? Nope. There are all sorts of different types of craft. It's like the question is, in my opinion, tantamount to how many different types of birds are there? Well, there are many. Or how many different types of plants or bacteria are there? It appears as though there's an immense diversity in the types of craft and, I presume, types of creatures that visit our planet. Their discs, their triangles. One report comes to mind in particular from, I think it's from April 2001, three people were driving on a uh, remote road in Meriwether County, Georgia, and suddenly their their SUV vehicle was approached by a cluster of tiny orange lights. And the witnesses do not know how, but they all agree that those lights that had been on the exterior of their vehicle when they first saw them got to the interior of their vehicle. And they were only about the size of a marble or maybe a walnut. There may have been different sizes, but they're all sorts of different types 
and shapes and sizes of UFOs. Going back to the Phoenix Lights case for a moment, probably, in my opinion, probably the most dramatic event in the history of ufology. The objects that loitered over Phoenix that Thursday night were up to eight miles in width, or perhaps a little bit more. For those of our listeners who may have a facility with trigonometry, the object was 9,000 feet above the ground level, and it subtended an arc people reported from the ground. It subtended an arc of 135 degrees. If those estimates are correct, and we have a number of people who attest to them, then uh, that translates to a craft that was 8.23 terrestrial statute miles from wingtip to wingtip. And the U.S. Air Force pilot who intercepted it reported to his ground crew that the object filled 180 degrees of his canopy as he faced forward. So everybody who saw those objects is pretty much in agreement as to how large they were. So take an object as small as a marble or a walnut shell and compare it to those objects that were over uh, Phoenix. It points up the diversity of craft is what I'm getting at. That makes sense. Did the Air Force individual who testified to this, how did you get this information? Well, I've played that tape many, many times on public radio or on radio programs and also at public presentations. The two F-15Cs that were launched that night, I have reason to believe, earlier in the day had been used to chaperone the president's flight from Washington, D.C. down to Florida. When the president or any VIP or dignitaries in the air, they are chaperoned by heavily armed, very capable jet fighters and other aircraft as well. So President Clinton spent the day that Thursday, again, we're talking about the 13th of March, 1997, spent the day golfing with the professional golfer, Greg Norman from Australia. Oh, I remember it. Isn't that when he, wasn't that part of Ken Starr's investigation where Monica Lewinsky was supposedly with Norman when Clinton broke his knee or something like that? I remember that whole Greg Norman. Well, I don't remember. I remember the president's injury. But my suspicion, absent proof, is the president sustained the injury. He essentially and allegedly injured the ligaments of his knee that just gave way. But we also know that just shortly after the Phoenix Lights event had started, and shortly after the two F-15s that had intercepted one of the objects over Camelback Mountain had returned to Luke Air Force Base, the U.S. military was elevated from Defense Condition 5, which is normal peacetime condition, up to Defense Condition 3 in one step, skipping four altogether. And it was just at that moment that President Clinton allegedly injured the ligaments in his knee. If, in fact, he did sustain that injury, my strong suspicion is he did so as the Secret Service detachment that travels with him was racing him to a waiting vehicle in response to the declaration of DEFCON 3 to get him to a military safe spot underground. 
Hmm. Yeah, because I do remember the claim, at least, was that he slipped at Greg Norman's house. There was a whole big thing. About, I remember that whole thing because yeah. Greg Norman had hated him. He was a lifelong Republican and then realized that he really liked him. How is it? Is it? How do we find out whether we are at DEFCON 3 or 1? Is that public information? It is it is not public, and I just, public information, and I discovered that they can they can shift between defense conditions without our ever knowing it. That makes perfect sense. They would want to do that. The governments are in the business of controlling human beings. They don't like human beings to be in the know and really understand what the government is doing with them, to them, or for them, unless it makes the citizen happy. But I tried to confirm that we had been elevated to DEFCON 3 by calling the U.S. Air Force office in the Pentagon, the commander of the U.S. Air Force. And I could tell that the military officers I was talking to over the telephone, and I talked to several of them during that call, were more amused by my request. And they were, to a degree, I felt mocking me. I was a mere citizen. What business did I have for pressing the issue of the change of DEFCON defense condition in response to the Phoenix Lights? But I've had people privately tell me who were very quite senior in the military that they know quite well about the Phoenix Lights event, and they've all but confirmed for me that we were elevated to DEFCON 3 that night as a result of the Phoenix Lights event. Hmm. Do people equally report UFO sightings and alien sightings or experience to your organization, or are you specifically just reports of UFOs? Well, we take reports that are in one way or another related to you, the presence of UFOs or aliens. We don't limit what people can report to us. If they think they've had a UFO experience or an alien experience, I encourage them to write it down and record it. One of the hardest jobs I've ever had in my life, however, is trying to get the average American to write anything. I've never heard so many excuses in my life as I have from the people who really, really do not want to write a written report. And it's very frustrating, but it's part of the turf. It's part of the job because it may tell me that, well, that report may not have been true after all. If somebody doesn't want to attest to it and submit it and share it publicly, albeit anonymously, we never we never release personal information about the people who contact our center, it may be just as well that we don't get that report because it may have been a well-crafted hoax. What do you think of the work of Yvonne Smith and other alien abduction experts? Are you less skeptical of UFOs than you are, for example, of alien landings or visitations, abductions, or probes? What are your views on probes and abductions? Yvonne is a very, I think, a very careful researcher. We have many very skilled, very dedicated abduction researchers, but I don't know what to make of the phenomenon the problem I experience is trying to distinguish those people who genuinely have had an alien abduction experience from those people who are just wannabes. 
and my instincts tell me that there are a lot of wannabes, not only in that field, but among people who report the alleged sighting of UFOs. We get a lot of calls, but considerably fewer written reports. That tells me that a lot of those calls had to do with maybe confabulation of some sort or, as you've correctly stated, derangement. That's one of the principal problems in this field is you get a lot of people who are borderline delusional or maybe not so borderline. It's interesting. It's hard to measure. It is. It's interesting because as I'm listening to you, on one hand, I'm thinking, wow, there is really a level of scrupulousness that you definitely bring to your field and your profession. On the other hand, when I hear there's a lot of extrapolation that you have to make to put things together, to put pieces of the puzzle together, you have to have a certain disbelief in the government. You have to have a certain level of putting pieces like the Clinton Phoenix Lights situation. That seems to me, just when I hear it, it just seems like, wow, that, that really takes a lot of putting pieces together that may or may not be scrupulously arrived at. But how do you deal with personal doubt? On my part or on the part of people who contact our center? I guess both. Let's start on your part. I'm always reevaluating, constantly reevaluating my position. And it changes almost from report to report. I am reasonably convinced that we are being visited by UFOs. I have seen five or possibly six of them or experienced them, either seen them or heard them. And once you see one, you've seen the light, if you will. So I'm convinced that we're being visited, but we don't come anywhere close to knowing the full dimension of what these things are, where they come from, how they get here, what our relationship to them is, what does their presence on this planet have to say about our origin, about what we do on this planet, what we're supposed to do on this planet during this brief glimmer of consciousness we call life, and what afterlife may be. Those are questions I'm constantly struggling with, as any mentally active person is as well, irrespective of whether they're interested in UFOs or not. I I don't think my situation is in any way unique. People are asking questions all the time, important questions, and recognizing that they don't have the answers and struggling with attempting to answer the big questions. What are we doing in this universe? Where have we come from? What are we supposed to do in our lives to justify our existence and so on and so forth? Of course, there are many religions that profess that they have the answer to that, and they may. I can't argue that point. I'm, I consider myself quite spiritual and religious, but I don't feel myself qualified to dictate to other people what they should be believing. That makes sense. In your view, what is the most interesting case? Well, there are a couple that come to mind. The one I've been talking about, of course, is the Phoenix Light. Just in brief summary, that night, at least five, possibly six objects, which were very, very large. We, we can almost measure them from data we have about them. 
very large, meaning eight miles in width, as I've already mentioned during this program. They were capable of very fast flight. They could jump on the order of miles in the matter of seconds. That is a remarkable piece of hardware if our understanding of what they did is correct. So the Phoenix Lights, in my opinion, stands close to first place. Another one that I find very interesting is the abduction of Travis Walton on November 5th, 1975. I presume you've crossed paths with him at a time or two. He's, I know him well. Uh, I find, I believe virtually every word he says, he's a very forthright, very seemingly a truth-speaking person. And he was gone for five days. In fact, he was uh, attacked by a UFO. I say attacked, he was struck in the chest and the upper body by a bolt of light that allegedly had been shot out of a disc, a 20-foot diameter disc approximately. And he was gone for five days, and the story he tells is spine-tingling. That's another, that's a good one. There are a number of good cases. The, The one I find particularly unsettling is the case of Mr. Todd Sees. This is a case that occurred in August of 2002, 15 years ago. Gentleman who lived in south central Pennsylvania with his family, his wife and children, to make a long story short, apparently was killed and grossly mutilated. They found his body 40 hours later after he was seen being dragged up into a saucer above Mount Montour in Pennsylvania. I find that case to be spine-tingling and very, very unsettling because of what happened to him. Where can people go to learn more about those cases? They've been posted to our website for 15 years. Fantastic. So they can just go to your website and do a little bit of investigation. They can just start reading. The one thing A lot of Americans don't like to do. They want to have people tell them orally what the truth is. And I'm trying to encourage people to start reading. It's a much more more useful function than having sitting, listening to somebody tell you what they want you to know. What's the most spine-tingling aspect of the Travis or Todd case? Well, the the nature of the evidence, the power of the evidence. In the case of Todd Sees, who, again, this was a Sunday morning, the 4th of August, 2002, he allegedly was seen by not fewer than four people being lifted off the ground and floated up a shaft of light, appeared to be a shaft of light connecting the bottom of a saucer to the top of the mountain. And There was a search party that searched for him for two days, all that Sunday and the subsequent day, Monday, the 5th of August. Tragically, it was his son who found his father's remains suspended in a tree and so grossly mutilated, it is rumored, that not even the son could recognize the remains of his late father. The remains were taken to a hospital where it was seen by multiple medical personnel and then taken to the coroner's office where uh, an autopsy was performed. Photographs of the decedent's remains were taken. 
and the remains, according to one source, were returned to the family. The family was not allowed to view the remains of their loved one. Very, very unusual, I'm told. They took possession of what it was alleged to have been the remains that were sealed in a, not a wooden coffin, but a metal coffin that had its lid screwed down tight and the family was forbidden from viewing the remains or having an open casket funeral when Mr. C's was buried. My suspicion, absent any proof or even evidence, is that that coffin may have had nothing more than river rocks, heavy river rocks in it to match his weight, and God only knows where his cadaver might be. Hmm. I actually uh, recommended to the family that they petition the court, get a court order that would allow them to exhume the remains and open the coffin. They decided they didn't want to do that. I think that was a mistake. Well, I could absolutely pick your brain on this topic for hours on end. And I know that I have to be respectful of your time. But before we wrap up, I have something that I like to ask at the end of all the interviews, which I call QCQs, which are quick, curious questions. Before asking where people could find you and some of your contact information, the first quick curious question is if you could have a billboard that was anywhere and that could say anything, where would it be and what would it say? Well, it would be on an interstate, and I guess they're pretty much all the same. I would say uh, report your UFO sightings. And I say that because we're getting just a very, very minor dribble of data, despite the 113,000 reports that are posted to my website, that represents probably less than one one-thousandth of one percent of the UFOs that are seen. I estimate, Becky, that out of 20,000 Americans who see an object that they're pretty convinced was a genuine, authentic UFO, only one out of 20,000 will ever come forward and report it. And of those people who report it, let's say out of 100 people who report their sighting over our telephone hotline, only about 20 or 30% of those people will follow up with a written report. Unless we get a written report, we have nothing. You can't post a conversation on the over the telephone very easily. Is there any tool that you suggest people have? I mean, they have their cell phone camera. Is there any tool that you suggest if people are really interested in being able to document UFOs that they should oh, part of their a arsenal? Camera, a camera, a compass, binoculars, or the most important thing of all is knowledge and common sense. Knowledge, for example, of the night sky. A lot of people... We'll go outside and they'll have a clear night and they'll look up and they'll see a bright star and, oh my God, it's a UFO. No, it isn't. It's just a bright star that they haven't ever seen or noticed before in their lives. Most people do not know much about the night sky. They're generally pretty ignorant about being able to name stars or constellations or planets or they don't even understand the basic principles. So I would say just... Do a little reading of a, in a basic astronomy book so you understand the basic principles and just maintain a strong degree of 
disbelief and skepticism and most of all common sense. If you see an object twinkling in the sky for five hours, don't call the National UFO Reporting Center in a dither to report you've seen a UFO. Figure out whether it might be a star or a planet before you go off the deep end. That would be my recommendation. That's great advice. What's something that a lot of people believe that you are skeptical of? Well, I don't know if they know much about my uh, my views of the world. Uh, there are a lot of things in ufology that I am very skeptical of. There are a lot of people who, for example, claim that chemtrails are real. It doesn't have anything to do with ufology as far as I know, but my opinion is somewhat different from theirs. And my reaction to the claim that chemtrails are a reality is, where's the evidence? Where are the studies? Where are the articles? Where are the peer-reviewed articles that document that this is a real phenomenon? I believe I'm correct in saying we don't have any. So there are a lot of things I'm skeptical of. People talk about channeling and all sorts of things that seem to be on the periphery of ufology. And my question is, how do you document all the, the alleged channeling phenomenon? There are a lot of things that people say that are, in my opinion, little more than urban legend. And I may be wrong, but I expect those people, if they make a claim to be able to back it up, with some kind of evidence and to share their line of thinking so somebody can determine whether it's correct line of reasoning or whether it might be specious reasoning. Fantastic. That's helpful. And we'll actually throw some of those things in the show notes. We'll have show notes that have all of the links to things that you've mentioned or articles and certainly links to your site just so we have it on audio, where's the best place for people to find and connect with you? The best place to connect with me is through our website or email, which is very simply ufocenter.com, U-F-O-C-E-N-T-E-R.com. If any of our listeners have had what they believe were genuine UFO sightings of authentic UFOs, I would strongly urge them to write it down. Thinking about it doesn't do any good. Talking about it doesn't do any good. Talking about it over the telephone is a waste of time, largely. You have to write it down with all the facts in a well-organized fashion, with everything included, so another person reading the statement could understand clearly what the event looked like to the original witness. That's the important thing. That's what I'd have them do. We also have a telephone hotline. It's been the same number for 43 years since the National UFO Reporting Center was founded in October of 1974, and that hotline number is just 206-722-3000, 206-722-3000, a Seattle number. They can call, but they may be shocked by how little I want to talk to them about their experience. I want them to write about it. And again, as I mentioned earlier, getting over that hurdle with most people who call on the hotline one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life. Don't you have a template for them to fill out? Yeah, it's an online report form on our website. It's like a blank job application. But trying to get them to do that is they just want to, most people just want to talk about it. 
and that's a cardinal sign in my book that the report may be may not be sincere or may not be accurate. Well, that makes total sense that if you can't follow a simple template that maybe your report is not worth considering. Yep, that's my suspicion, but we probably miss a lot of good reports because I don't want to sit here for half an hour, an hour, or at tops three hours listening to somebody's detailed description in which they say the same thing eight or ten times. I don't want to do that. It's a waste of my time. I want people to record, capture the data surrounding their sightings and write it down and submit it so we can post it to our website and let the world know about their experience. Again, when we post it, it's all anonymous. I wish to emphasize that point. Again, we do not release personal information about the people who submit reports. I really appreciate your talking with me. I find the topic fascinating, and I hope listeners will as well. I suspect they will. Thank you so much, Peter. Thank you, Becky. I've enjoyed it, and perhaps we'll do another one sometime if your listeners enjoy what we've talked about here today. I would love that. Peter Davenport is a nationally acclaimed ufologist and the director of the National UFO Reporting Center. Thanks so much for listening. I really hope you enjoyed the episode. Before you take off, I have a quick question and a few more things to let you know about. One, you can find show notes and all resources mentioned at appliedcuriositylab.com forward slash blog. And the question, would you enjoy joining the ranks of curiosity seekers and adventurous thinkers? If so, you are invited to join the tribe of the curious. You'll receive Quick Curiosity Monday. This short weekly email is curiosity lube for your brain. It consists of ideas I'm pondering, curiosities the tribe has shared, and things that I'm enjoying that I suspect you might too. Just go to appliedcuriositylab.com to join, or you can probably just pick your favorite search engine and type in Tribe of the Curious. And let's connect online at Becky Saltzman on Twitter and on Facebook at Applied Curiosity Lab. Finally, in order to avoid missing insights from outside the boundaries of ordinary, subscribe to Applied Curiosity Lab Radio on iTunes, YouTube, Stitcher, and all the other places podcasts hide and wait to be discovered. In the meantime, elevate curiosity. Curiosity.